World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Hello, my name is James Bagley and this is the World We Got This podcast from King's College London. Talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. So today we're going to be talking to Professor Anthony Pereira about his new book, Modern Brazil, A Very Short Introduction. As regular listeners will know, we try to explore and understand our world by looking at global challenges, as well as the histories and cultures which shape them. In the case of Brazil, the country lies at the centre of some of the toughest global challenges, be it climate change in the form of Amazonian deforestation or the rise of authoritarianism in the form of its president, Jair Bolsonaro. In our discussion, we explored how Brazil came to this moment and what its modern history can tell us about its future. A quick note about the podcast. We hope you enjoyed last week's release of the World in Focus panel discussion on the global housing crisis. You can look out for similar such events in the coming weeks and months by heading to our website and also by subscribing to our monthly newsletter. Please do subscribe, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really does help us reach more people. Lastly, we recorded this before they finally called the election for Biden in the US and before we knew the initial results of the Brazilian municipal elections. But to find out more about the fallout from the election in the US, you can look forward to a special series of episodes we're going to be releasing in the run-up to President-elect Biden's inauguration, in which we'll explore some of the issues his presidency will face around the world. And for those wanting to know more about what happened in Brazil's municipal elections, please do watch back a panel discussion we ran with the University of Oxford, which is available on the Global Affairs YouTube channel. Okay, so enough plugging from us. On to today's episode, What Made Modern Brazil? with Professor Anthony Pereira. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. I guess I wanted to start the discussion and about the book. I mean, one of the things that I think really struck me when I when I was reading it was, you know, Brazil is in the media at the moment. Probably two things come to mind. First of all, obviously, the rise of uh, Bolsonaro, but also the centrality of the Amazon to current discussions around deforestation and climate change. And... Yet, I think in a lot of that discussion, particularly here in the UK, we don't have a deeper understanding of Brazil, not just its history, but its kind of contemporary modern formation. Your book starts in the opening ceremony, the 2016 Olympics, where it kind of discusses some of those kind of founding ideas of Brazil. Yeah. um, So one of the themes in the opening ceremony of the Olympics, which seems like a long time ago now, it was only four years ago, but it seems like a long time ago was sustainability and the environment. And despite Bolsonaro, President Bolsonaro, Brazil has been in the lead in many instances in sort of developing the idea of sustainable development and uh, a kind of environmentalist, conservationist mindset. So in 1992, the big UN conference, Conference on the Environment, occurred in Rio de Janeiro, and that led to the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement of 2015. You can see over the over the last few decades, it's really growing sort of environmental consciousness in Brazil. But then, you know, that sits uneasily with the historical tendency to be very predatory towards the environment. You know, the destruction of most of the Atlantic rainforest 
along the eastern coast of, of Brazil is is sort of a bad precedent, if you like, for, for what's happening in the Amazon. So I focus in the book on the the environmental theme in the uh, 2016 Olympic, uh, the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, because they really wanted to make it a green games. And they had all the athletes plant trees and they had the uh, someone from the Obama, the, the Forest Protection Agency, in the, when they raised the flag. So they really tried to emphasize it. And it's kind of poignant to watch that now. You can watch it on YouTube because um, the current government, I don't think, would have had would have wanted to have anything like that in an opening ceremony. But that was one theme, the environment. But there were there were others that identified. For example, the idea of Brazil being a country of the future. So this idea that it's that it has to look to the future because the past is quite somber. You know, it was a, it was a biggest slave owning society in the world in the 19th century. It was based on a very predatory form, an exploitative form of sort of colonial economic development. And so the idea that Brazil can contribute in terms of modernism in the arts, in terms of urban planning, architecture, um, music, you know, literature, I think that's very strong. That's a very strong sort of impulse within Brazil is that, that they, Brazil can really contribute to, to sort of move humanity forward, but it doesn't always get recognized. So I think those were two two things that I that I picked up on in the ceremony as sort of being distinctive elements of of Brazilian national identity. And in a way they're sort of universal. I think you know people in lots of other countries have have similar aspirations to try to manage and conserve the environment, find a way to be sustainably uh, sustainable and then you know contribute somehow to to innovation to to what whatever modernity is going to be in the future. What comes across, and I, and I guess thinking more about this in terms of Brazil, and also actually having a conversation with a colleague in the Australia Institute here at King's about those Olympic opening ceremonies and thinking about it's been coming up for 20 years since Sydney's opening ceremony and some of the myths that are formed uh, in these ceremonies, but also how actually they do fit within a kind of story that a country wants to tell about themselves and that we often actually accept as, as the story of that country. And, and one of the reasons I guess maybe you wanted to write the book was because it, it does give a more complex and, and comprehensive understanding of how we got to the point we are with modern Brazil. Yeah, I tried to, you know, sort of show the tensions in the myths. For example, one of the myths sort of depicted in the opening ceremony in Brazil is the one of inclusion and mixture. You know, there's a moment in the ceremony where an actress says, you know, in Brazil, we all mix, we all accept mixture. And, you know, that's true to some extent. It is a very racially mixed country, the history is not all one of sort of peaceful inclusion. You know, there's attacks on the indigenous people in colonialism. There was slavery. And to, you know, give them credit, the organizers of the ceremony did show slavery. They didn't shy away from depicting that. But if you look at right now, the homicide rate in Brazil, it's high enough that, you know, every year you get over 50,000 homicides, which is in absolute terms is the biggest number of murder victims by nation in the world. And so this idea of peaceful inclusion sits very uneasily side by side these figures, this knowledge that we have of how much violence there is in the society. So, but I think you're right. There, there, there are things that countries sort of, or people in countries tell themselves, which often bear, a, have a kernel of truth to them. But then there's other social realities that have to be factored in if you really want to kind of understand the society in, in greater depth. So, and I think that's one where, you know, Brazilians are, I think, rightly proud that the fact that they have pretty good relations with just about every neighboring country in South America. And they have 10 neighbors. In the book, you two periods in particular that you touch on 
The first is that of Vargas, and in your own words, an astute tactician, landowner, and former officer from Rio Grande do Sol. How did he become president? This is in the 1950s. And why is this period so vital? Yeah, Vargas is an amazing figure. He's probably the sort of preeminent political figure of the 20th century for Brazil. And he came to power at first, leading a revolution in 1930 after a disputed election, actually, which is kind of interesting given what we're seeing in the United States right now. There was a disputed election, wasn't accepted, there was a revolt, and he was one of the leaders of the revolt, became president in the 30s, had a 15-year period as president, many of those years as a dictator because they closed Congress and so on. But he comes back in 1950 as a national developmentalist leader. So he's very much reborn as a politician, and he becomes much more interested in rights for working people. This was the beginning of uh, the trade union movement in Brazil, and, and there was a new franchise. So workers in cities got the vote for the first time, and he sort of stands up for them, and, and he's responsible for uh, new labor laws that improve working conditions and, and, and wages. And he kind of embodies this idea of national development. So under his this second period when he was president from 51 to 54, Brazil nationalized the oil sector and created a state-owned company, Petrobras, which is still a, a major company in the economy. They created a steel, a state-owned steel mill. They created a national development bank. And this idea that in the absence of a strong private sector, you need the state to both to represent sort of the aspiration for national economic development, but also to to protect, you know, and it, it is a somewhat paternalistic ideology, to protect workers. So this is often called sort of workerism by uh, Vargas's workerism, protect them and to bring them into the national community. That's really something that I think uh, survives even after his suicide in 1954. Uh, so when you see Lula, when Lula was celebrating the discovery of the pre-salt oil offshore of, of Brazil in the late 2000s, to put his hand in the petroleum, put his hands up in a gesture that Getulio had done in the 50s. He's kind of, you know, mimicking Getulio and very much identifying with Getulio Vargas and this idea of national development. Uh, so the Workers' Party, I think, still has a lot of that sense of what, what a, a political party, what a, what a government should be doing when it comes to um, the economy and, and economic development. And I, and I think, you know, there's still traces of Vargas there. And you mentioned there that he ended in tragedy with his suicide in 1954. And one of the themes that comes up time and time again in the book, you talk about futurism and Brazil always being the, the country of the future. But this history is that marked with these moments of acceleration and then tragedy or setback. Is this something that's a cliche of, of modern Brazil or, or is it actually something that we can say, yes, this is a repeated theme? It's certainly a theme that Brazilians are aware about. They talk about the hen's flight, you know, this uh, hen sort of running along the ground, getting up into the air and then coming back down onto the ground and never quite taking flight. So, so I think there, there is a, a feeling within Brazil itself that sometimes the, you know, the, the expectations and the hype and the aspirations don't end well. And you can see that in you know, the period of the 50s with Kubitschek. Kubitschek was the president, was one of the presidents after Vargas, and this idea that they could develop 50 years in five, and that was followed by, you know, not too many years later by a military coup, the so-called Brazilian miracle of the late 60s and early 70s, very high growth, and then ending with the debt crisis in 1980s. I would argue that there, there have been sort of long-term structural changes that haven't been reversed. 
So if you look at, for example, the economy going from an economy that was very dependent on coffee as an export and really kind of a, almost a, a one-crop economy in the early 20th century to the way that the country industrialized in the mid-20th century and then urbanized, that's a change that you know is much more enduring. So there have been those kinds of changes. But I think there is a perception that you know whenever things get good in Brazil, watch out, look over your shoulder because something bad is about to happen. Never, you know, don't believe the hype. And uh, we saw that in the euphoric period of 2010 when President Lula was in his last year and growth was 7.5%. And uh, everyone was saying, you know, Brazil has made it, Brazil's arrived. It's a country that's respected on the international stage. And, you know, what happened after that was recession, uh, the impeachment of a president, protests, and then we got uh, Jair Bolsonaro getting elected in 2018. So, yeah, I think I think it's definitely a theme that's there. And I wouldn't want to exaggerate it because there are other kinds of changes. I mean, some recent ones I would mention, too, is you know increasing life expectancy, infant mortality going down, people getting better nourished, people getting more educated. All of those things are long-term trends that are going in a good direction that have been going in a good direction for a long time, but there is a problem, I think, with Brazil of volatility and 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 not really, not really be able to maintain momentum in 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 certain areas. I've said that there are two big areas that you focus on in terms of the history. The, the other, obviously, is the uh, military dictatorship. And one of the things I wanted to ask was, Brazilian military actually played a key role in the formation of. Brazilian state. And so this didn't come out of nowhere. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of how a military coup was possible in Brazil and, and the role the military played um, at that period before they actually took power? Great question, because a lot of people expected in 64, when the military did intervene, that it would be a very temporary intervention, as had been the interventions of 1955 and 1945, for example. 45 is a typical one. They pushed Dar Vargas out and they said, we're going to have new elections. Many people thought that was going to happen in 64. But I think a lot of things had changed. So one of the things that happened was that the Brazilian military sent a, a fairly small force. They sent 25,000 troops to Italy to fight in World War II. They were the only Latin American troops there. They were under U.S. command. And this cemented the relationship between the Brazilian military and the U.S. military. And there was quite a bit of military assistance in the post-World War II period. The Brazilian military, in a way, was had this privileged access to funds and uh, training and uh, arms from the United States, they created a superior war college based on the war college in the U.S. And that's where they looked at national problems and they had courses that civilians could take. And so they, they actually invited a lot of civilian participants in these courses and they kind of developed a vocation for rule, if you like. They looked at the national problems, they developed this idea of national security and when they stepped in in 64, although some people in the military, I think, were keen on just getting rid of certain actors and, and returning to elections in 1965, there were enough people in the, in the officer corps at that point that said, we know what we're doing here. We can actually govern. And they ended up staying for 21 years. So I think, I think that in, the way they changed internally and sort of began to view national problems as, in a way, their own domain. And it has to do partly, too, with the Cold War, the idea that in the Cold War, the real enemy wasn't someone who was going to invade your territory from outside. It was someone inside your country who adhered to what they saw as an alien ideology, communism, uh, influenced by the Cubans and the Russians and the Chinese and so on. And if, if you really think that, and if you think that those people are hiding themselves for strategic reasons, 
you end up becoming a bit paranoid and you end up wanting to know what's going on basically everywhere, you know, in the education system, in factories, in fields. And when they were in power, they ramped up the coercive capacity of the state. They created a a centralized intelligence agency. They took over control of of state-level policing. And, you know, unfortunately, they engaged in a lot of repression that still has a legacy today in, in Brazil. You mentioned the the U.S. involvement or U.S. interest in Brazil, which dates back quite a long way. And and in the book, you, you speak just ahead of the coup, actually, you mentioned that Bobby Kennedy, John Kennedy's brother, actually visits Brazil and visits the, the, the then democratically elected president. How critical was Brazil to U.S. interests? And did this kind of accelerate after the war and into the Cold War? I think Brazil was important. And it's fascinating. We know a lot more than we used to about that period because so much has been declassified on the U.S. side. So you can find recordings and documents in the Kennedy Library, the LBJ Library. I mean, the traditional spheres of influence that have suffered more from U.S. intervention are you know, Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. So South America is a bit removed. It's, it's farther away from U.S. concerns. But I think Given its size, given that Brazil is sort of half of South America in terms of population, territory, and economy, they really did see it as key. And they were they were irritated. The American government was irritated at the time when JFK sent Bobby Kennedy to Brasilia in, in December of 1962 that Brazil had not fully embraced the Alliance for Progress, which is sort of the, you know, the, pro, the big uh, program that the U.S. was promoting then. And I think they really saw it as... Uh, of course, this is after the Cuban Revolution. They saw it as a country that they really had to keep on their side. And uh, the meeting was quite pivotal because Kennedy got very frustrated listening to Goulart. And I think Goulart, the president, was trying to explain his political constraints and how he was dealing with the constraints that he was under. And Bobby Kennedy wasn't that interested. And he actually compared Goulart to Jimmy Hoffa, the Teamsters leader, the trade union leader that he had clashed with and investigated as attorney general. And that wasn't good for Goulart to be compared to Jimmy Hoffa because uh, that was an enemy of Bobby Kennedy. And it was not so long after that meeting that Goulart had a referendum and got full presidential control and felt that he had sort of strengthened his power. But the U.S. as well, after the October missile crisis, felt that its hand was strengthened. And you start getting the exploration on the U.S. side for an alternative to Goulart. Who, who can we get that could replace him? And they they have um, back-channel negotiations through a guy called Vernon Walters, the U.S. military attache, who had served in Italy and spoke Portuguese. Uh, Walters was a key sort of figure in linking uh, U.S. foreign policy establishment to the Brazilian military. And so I, I do think they, they saw it as a kind of key part of the jigsaw puzzle. And, you know, I remember seeing the Washington Post headline after the coup, and it was something like, a red takeover averted in Brazil. That was a quite fanciful headline because there, as far as we know, as far as the evidence suggests, there was no plan by Goulart for a red takeover. He was far from a communist. You know, he was a, a big landowner and a kind of center-left politician. But that maybe shows the importance, you know, the importance of the country to the U.S. policymakers at the time. Yeah, things didn't end well for Hoffa or, or Goulart, the two, two characters no. the candidates came across. Um, right, right. <laughs> there's two things that I wanted to pick out from that that period in the book where you, where you talk about the dictatorship, and that's the kind of economic uh, system that they that they implement, and then also the kind of security system because I think they differ slightly from other South American regimes of that period in a way that I don't think everyone is. I, I certainly wasn't aware of. On the economic side, 
you mention in the book that that they were in no way fully liberal in their outlook, even though they may have been kind of anti-communist. They weren't necessarily going down the line of, say, Pinochet in Chile. Can you tell us a little bit more about their kind of economic platform? Yeah, they're they're an interesting have an interesting orientation on the economy because I think a lot of people assume that all of the military regimes in South America at that time were were very much like Pinochet. You know, Pinochet regime was famous for bringing down the Chicago Boys and implementing really drastic neoliberal reforms in the mid seventies, liberalizing everything. And that was not the approach of this military regime. They they increased the number of state owned enterprises. They used the state to develop communications and and transportation infrastructure. They certainly presided over big investments by multinational corporations that were interested in being in a big economy, but they often put pressure on those multinationals to do more research and development in Brazil, to share technology, and to partner with Brazilian firms. So they were not, they were definitely not economic liberals. And, you know, for a while, it looked as if their model was extremely successful. The the high rates of growth between 1967 and about 1973 looked very impressive, even though at the same time, inequality was increasing. But they had a real shock with the quadrupling of oil prices between 73 and 74. Brazil was a major importer of oil at that point. And they, they, they managed to paper over that difficulty by borrowing borrowing from a lot of the big banks in Europe and the United States at interest rates that were low at that time. And they sort of paid for their import bills that way. But by the time the second oil shock happened in 1979 and interest rates went up, they, they were in real trouble. So in the 1980s, there was a real debt crisis in Brazil, as there was in many other countries in, in Latin America. And I think that was another factor in their decision to negotiate their way out of power. That was a good time to give up direct responsibility for the economy as far as the armed forces were concerned. And there was a recession in the early 80s. What's interesting, too, is when the Workers' Party comes to power in 2003 through the presidency of Lula, the Workers' Party was quite critical of many aspects of the military regime, including the torture and the disappearances of people and some of the kind of um, exaggerated jingoism, if you like, or patriotism. But they actually didn't mind the economic policies. They saw the policies as being that kind of national developmentalist mindset that, that Vargas had, had sort of spoken for in the 1950s. And in many ways, they had affinities with it. And they, and they did some of the things that are reminiscent of what the military regime did. They had a national content law in petroleum and gas. They tried to build up certain industries uh, like shipbuilding by requiring investors in oil, oil and gas to use Brazilian companies. And that, I think, is, a, is an interesting issue because uh, the Argentine military regime of 76 to 83 and the Chilean regime of 73 to 89 were quite liberal and not interested in this kind of national developmentalism that you see in Brazil. And it means that when Brazil finally does embrace neoliberalism, it's much later, it's 1990s. And as I say, one of the other things you mentioned and go into detail in the book is is looking at the kind of security apparatus of the state and some of the human rights abuses that were conducted by the regime. But there again, there were some very kind of specific ways in which it was maybe slightly different than, than other South American regimes. And I mean, there's one example you give in the book where it's this kind of massive operation by the military to kill a what is a small group of communists, freedom fighters, they actually send in, I think you mentioned 20,000 troops. What was the kind of character of the regime from a kind of human rights perspective? 
it certainly didn't engage in the, the scale of atrocities that occurred in Chile and Argentina. And that's partly, I think, because the opposition to it was much weaker. And so it was far more selective. So the Truth Commission that came out that was created under President Dilma Rousseff and that finished its report in December of 2014 found 434 cases of killing and disappearances, which I'm not excusing any of those because any life lost to repression like that is a tragedy, but certainly a much smaller number than the you know three to 5,000 mentioned in Chile or the 20 to 30,000 mentioned in Argentina. And so it tended to be intelligence-based and selective. And about half of those listed in the Truth Commission report as having disappeared came from that operation that you mentioned with the small group in um, Araguaia, which is now in Tocantins state. It was a small group of young people coming out of the universities who were members of the Communist Party of Brazil, which was a kind of splinter from the main Communist Party of Brazil. They were they believed in the idea of a kind of rural insurrection, a, r- a rural guerrilla uprising. And they were, I think, kind of lost in the same way that Che Guevara was lost in, in Bolivia in 1967 when he, when he was hunted down and killed because they weren't local people. They weren't locals in that region. Many of them were from Sao Paulo. They stood out like sore thumbs. They tried to build support of people who lived out in that rural areas, but the people in the rural areas were quite leery of being associated with them for obvious reasons. And the military sent this increasingly large units. In the end, it was about 20,000 soldiers that were out there to try to catch them. Unfortunately, you know, they engaged in detention and then and then disappearance, which is about half of the Brazilian disappeared come from this, this one operation. You know, it's a legacy of a different time when, for some reason, the young people thought that they could really affect change in that way, you know, taking up armed struggle against a repressive regime. And the regime was prepared to go to any lengths to repress them and cover it up. So I think the Truth Commission report is an attempt to account for that and to sort of make an accounting and to accept state responsibility for these for these uh, atrocities. And, you know, the current president is not someone who sees that as having been worthwhile. You know, he's someone who very much extols the virtues of this regime. And I think it shows how memory of this regime is still contested in Brazil. Uh, there isn't a universal consensus that it was, um, you know, that it was wrong to do these things. And it may have not come to an end then, but it did come to an end later on. And, and that seems to be from reading the book, in partly down to this sort of union and labor kind of coalition of, of various different groups. And it's one thing we haven't mentioned yet, which does come up in the book. You mentioned the workers and that link to Lula. How important were the the labor movements in the kind of coming to the end of relative peaceful end to the dictatorship? Yeah, I think they were a very important pillar of the opposition to the dictatorship and a very important pillar of civil society, which at the time was trying to say to the regime, we would like a restoration of civil liberties, social rights, political rights. And I think one of the things that happened, especially after the the repression of that guerrilla movement in in Anaguaya, was that those people on the left who believed that somehow they could topple this regime with a few sort of idealistic guerrillas realized that that wasn't going to work and that they had to engage in mass politics of some kind. They had to join political parties. They had to convince more of their fellow citizens that things should change. 
So there were very important strikes in 1978 in the ABC, the suburbs of Sao Paulo in the auto plants. And Lula was probably the key leader of those strikes. And it was very simple what they what they were demanding at that point. They found out that the calculations for inflation used by the government understated inflation. And so that their pay adjustments were artificially kept low by inflation figures that were different from the inflation figures the government actually reported to the IMF. And so all it was was, you know, pay us in line with inflation, be accurate and consistent with the information you use. And it was initially, the strikes were initially treated as a sort of national security problem. These are subversives and so on. But then the government bowed to reality and allowed the auto companies, including some of the multinationals like Ford and Volkswagen, to negotiate with the unions and come up with new pay provisions. And then 79, there were strikes not only in the auto plants of ABC of Sao Paulo, but in other parts of the country. So if you take the trade union movement, especially in that part of Sao Paulo, industrial Sao Paulo, if you take what was going on in the countryside where activists influenced by liberation theology were creating a landless movement and a a rural trade union movement, and then you take middle-class intellectuals, middle-class students, for example, but also older people in the professions, you had a mix, a very important mix, I think, within civil society that was saying, we want this regime to end. And I think it's a good example of a movement coming together with many different strands to it and creating this pretty irresistible movement to return to democracy. And all these currents run directly into the contemporary Brazil and the Brazil of today. It feels like now the country is faced with what could be the biggest challenges it's ever faced. I mean, we know that COVID-19 has particularly hit Brazil hard, faced with a climate crisis that the whole world is faced with, but there's obviously some unique aspects in terms of the Amazon and what happens once the Amazon is reduced to a size where perhaps it has massive effects in terms of ecology. Does this kind of cycle that we've discussed and this oscillation between perhaps labor and worker movements and authoritarian uh, military-led Brazil, does this continue? And, And is it sustainable with these kind of multiple problems as we move into the next decade? I think that there can be or could be more oscillation, you know, from where we are right now politically in Brazil. It's always hard to predict because I think the last few years have been very tumultuous and very surprising. And so it's very dangerous to speculate about even something as relatively close as 2022 elections. My sense is that if you look at the research about who voted for uh, Jair Bolsonaro in 2018, and there's a very good new book about, about it by Jair Nicolau, called Brazil goes to the right. Most people don't believe that everyone who voted for him in the second round of the election, and that was a majority of the electorate, voted for him because they had absolute affinity with all of his ideological platform. Some people, and this is inevitable in a two-person race where you have a second round and it's a choice between one person and another, that um, many people simply didn't want the candidate of the Workers' Party. They, they They didn't want Fernando Haddadji. And they were willing to accept Bolsonaro for various reasons, whether he because they thought he was against corruption or they thought because he wanted economic reforms, liberal economic reforms, or simply that he was not Workers' Party. And so the core, the sort of ideological core of Bolsonarismo is probably much smaller than that second round vote. And it, it could be the 20% who supported him before the first round. It could be 30%. His approval rating right now is about 40%, although I think it's unlikely that all of those people would be ideologically in in sync. And so I think Brazil's politics could go in a lot of different directions. 
you know, there is a new axis contestation, which is between the hard right that Bolsonaro represents and something else, whether that's a kind of center-right positioning or something more to the left, it's not going to be clear. And there's a very good opportunity for Brazil, I think, to have, in a way, if you like, a referendum on what's been going on in the municipal elections that are about to take place, the first round on the 15th of November and the second round on the 29th of November. And although the president doesn't have a party as yet, he does have candidates who identify with him in these elections. And I think Brazilians are going to have a chance to, for example, if they have a mayor who's running for re-election, they can judge whether that person has done a good job with coronavirus. They can decide whether they want someone who's sort of pragmatically committed to solving problems at the municipal level, whether that's public transportation or housing or health, or whether they want a candidate who's more ideological and is mainly about tweeting things, you know, to do with uh, culture wars and, uh, you know, whatever else the talking points are. You know, the election may take place, we don't really know yet, but it may take place in the context in which it looks as if the Trump administration in the United States is on the way out. And President Bolsonaro has hitched his wagon to his strong affinity with and identification with, with Donald Trump. And we'll have to see how that plays out, whether that takes some wind out of his sails or he's able to tack and adapt and change his rhetoric to accommodate a non-Trumpian White House, if, if that's what we actually have in January of 2021. So I do think that there's going to be change in store, but this is such a volatile, in many ways, it's been a volatile electorate, if you, even if you just compare 2014 and 2018. And there's a lot of ground to cover. But I, I think you're absolutely right about the beginning. This is a really challenging time for Brazil. It's got this really deep recession. You know, the economy will have shrunk probably by 5% by the end of this year. There's very little fiscal room to spend money to get out of that recession. Unemployment is over 14%. And the pandemic is still rampaging through the society. So I think it's a real challenge. And but of course, the, many other countries are in the same situation. But I think it's really going to be a taxing time for people and be very interesting to see how voters deal with the municipal elections and who they think has a possibility of, of helping them out of, out of this hole that they're in. And we normally always ask our guests uh, for something positive from their research, <laughs> from the, the issue that they're, yeah, that, I mean, that's the, what, we, what we just spoke about is either positive, depends which side of the political argument you're on, I guess, but... <laughs> But obviously, in this case, that that might not be relevant. But I was just going to ask, you know, what what's the one thing that you'd like people to take away from this when when they read the book? Well, one one thing there's an anecdote that I talk about in the book, uh, in the chapter on the economy, where when I was a PhD student, I I was going to rural trade unions. I went to a little union up by the border between Pernambuco and Paraíba, and these were this was a union that represented people who cut cane during the sugar harvest. And this union made little wooden coffins for their members. And, the, and many of these coffins were for little kids. And I remember saying to the union president, why do you provide this service? He said, well, because we need to. So a lot of kids die here. So 1980, there were a lot of people who had these kinds of problems, high infant mortality, subnutrition, and hunger was a real problem at that time in, in Pernambuco because most of the people who cut cane for six months of the year when it was har- being harvested didn't have jobs for the rest of the year. And Brazil has improved in so many ways since then, in, in, in terms of those basic aspects of life, in terms of access to food, access to education, access to health care, life expectancy, 
lowering of infant mortality. And I think that's something that sometimes people forget. You know, especially younger people, they get frustrated with politics and they get frustrated with the system of representation and corruption and all, all the problems that exist in so many democracies. But I think that improvement is something that we've we've really not seen in the last 30, 40 years in, in more mature, advanced capitalist countries. But it's really happened in Brazil. And I think that's something to hold on to. Well, Anthony, it just leads me to say uh, Modern Brazil, a very short introduction is out now in all good bookshops. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, James. You've been listening to The World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman with editing from Rachel Waugh.